your word be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, the Mona Lisa is probably the most famous portrait ever painted. Um, You'll find it in the Louvre uh, Gallery in Paris. And it's so well known that uh, maybe even some of the kids here, um, if you shut your eyes right now, you could maybe just about um, picture it um, in your minds. And what is the big question people ask when they see the Mona Lisa? Is she smiling or isn't she? Uh, But have you ever looked at the background to that painting, that portrait? Uh, Now, those of you who've got your uh, phones out looking at a Bible, um, resist the temptation to check uh, the image on Google. But if you did that, or if you do that at the end of the service, you will see all sorts of things behind the portrait, uh, the Mona Lisa. You will see a valley. You will see mountains. Uh, You'll see hills, you'll see a river, uh, you'll see a bridge. And the painting is so familiar that we can very easily miss what's actually there. And this passage, Mark 11, is the same. If you've been to church services around um, Easter for maybe even more than one year, uh, then you'll probably have heard um, a version of this story read. And while familiarity might not lead to contempt, well, it can often lead to apathy, can't it, with looking at a passage like this. And Palm Sunday can be a bit of a confusing day. Um, It's a day of celebration in this passage, and yet we know what's coming. We know the end of the story. We know that the crucifixion um, awaits Jesus. And the theologian um, Fleming Rutledge, she captured this really well uh, at a, a church service on Palm Sunday. A teenager taking part in the service once turned round to her and said, I don't understand what I'm supposed to be feeling. I don't understand what I'm supposed to be feeling on this day. And I want us to look at this portrait of Jesus uh, this morning with fresh eyes. Let's try to do that. And let's see what's in the background. Three points, or maybe we should say three brush strokes as we look at it together. And the first, verses one to six, is this. Here as planned. Here as planned. And one of the things you notice if you look at these verses is just how deliberate everything is. As they draw near to Jerusalem, Jesus tells two of his disciples to go into the village. He says they'll find a young donkey. They're to untie it and bring it back to him. If anyone asks what they're doing, he gives a word that they'll accept. The Lord needs it and will send it back immediately. And then what Jesus says in verses 2 and 3 happens in verses 4 to 6. The disciples see the donkey. And the owners don't put up a fight, and they bring it to Jesus. 
And what this tells us is that Jesus is in complete control, complete command of this situation. Prior planning has gone in to all of this. Now, that is one example of the planning, but there are lots of others. And if you just flick back and look at chapter 10, verse 32, then you'll see Jesus tell his disciples that Easter, what we call Easter, had to happen. He must go to Jerusalem, he said. He will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They'll mock, spit, flog, and kill him. And three days later, he says, he will rise. And if you know Mark's gospel, you'll know that is the third occasion Jesus has said something like this in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. And his journey, his path to Jerusalem was something that was planned. But the planning went back even further. See, these verses, they're full of connections with the Old Testament. The most obvious is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Uh, Zechariah, who we just quoted from there, he was called to share God's word after God's people had returned from exile. It was a day of very small things. It was a time of real apathy. But in that verse, in that chapter, God told his people that one day he would send them a new king. Now the verses immediately prior to the one I quoted, they speak of God judging Israel's enemies when that happens. When people see this figure on a donkey, they are to know that freedom, deliverance, and security. Those are the things that are near. And Jesus knew this prophecy. When he told his disciples to get the donkey ready, he wanted everyone, he wanted them to know that he was fulfilling these words. And if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, this would be the action of a narcissist. This would be the action of somebody who just wanted the spotlight. But his arrival in Jerusalem, it is going to turn all our ideas about power and greatness upside down. And maybe you're newer to Christianity this morning and you're just learning to to read the Bible. Maybe you've been reading the Bible for years. I think this teaches us that we always read the Old Testament looking for Jesus. It all points forward to him. His birth is prophesied in Micah chapter 5. His miracles in Isaiah 35, his death, his crucifixion in Psalm 22 and lots of other places, his resurrection in Psalm 16, his ascension, his return in Psalm 72. And we've started a series in Galatians recently, we'll continue it this evening, but listen to these words from chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of women, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, when everything was right, that was when God sent his son Jesus into this world. And many historians have noted that God's timing really was perfect. Jesus came during the Roman Empire. And he came during a period of what was known as uh, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And this was a time when there was real stability in the Mediterranean. And there was a common language. There was uh, established trade routes. We all know that the Romans were good at building roads, don't we? And all of this meant that the message of Jesus could spread. So Palm Sunday, the days leading up to the cross, all of this was planned. And maybe you're just thinking, well, so what? How do we apply that to us? Well, I think it means that at least this, that we can trust God's timing and we can trust God's word. It means that what God promises to do, God always does. It's not always easy to believe that, is it? And God rarely does things on um, our time scale. But as someone has put it, God knows what he's about. God knows what he's about. He's never in a hurry. He's never too late. He's always on time. And we can trust his promises. You and I, we live in a world that is just drowning in information and opinions. There are so many voices, so many people who claim to be able to analyze what's going on right now, but there is one voice, one word above them all, the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And what God says will happen always happens. God's word is a sure word. It's a reliable word. It's a word that we can build our lives on. And Pam Sunday reminds us of that. Jesus is here as planned. Secondly, though, Jesus is here as king, verses 7 to 10. Jesus is here as king. Now, it's good that uh, the kids, uh, lots of the kids are in here this morning. I think, and we often think of Palm Sunday as being um, a bit of a day just for the kids, um, don't we? This passage is a bit of a kind of Sunday school um, favorite. It's got everything that kids love. There's an animal. Um, there's something to wave. Um, we, they're allowed to shout. Um, if they want to recreate it, they can get their coats out. They can stick them on the ground. They can even get their coats dirty. And kids love it. But this passage 
Um, kids, this passage is for the grown-ups as well. Jesus is coming as king. And so the question before us this morning is this, is he my king? Is he your king? Now the crowd show that they know he's a king by what they do and what they say. And during the festival of tabernacles um, or booths, um, God's people waved branches in celebration. And uh, as a friend of mine pointed out um, in a sermon I uh, listened to by him, palm branches, they were a kind of nationalistic symbol. Um, Scottish people have thistles, Irish people have shamrocks, Welsh people have leeks, English people have roses, Jewish people had palm branches. And in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, as Solomon, David's son, is anointed king, he rides his father's mule, his father's donkey. This was a sign of kingship. And in 2 Kings chapter 9, you can look at this later, after Jehu is anointed king of Israel, cloaks are spread before him. And Mark chapter 11, it's just like when royalty come to school and the red carpet is put out and pupils line up. They're on their best behavior. And when they know that royalty is coming, the head teachers make sure they follow protocol. They do what every other school has done before them, even if they themselves are Republicans. And the crowd um, show that Jesus is a king, not just by what they do, this crowd, but by what they say. Blessed, verse 10, is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And this is the third time in a few verses that David has been uh, mentioned. If you turn back a page um, to chapter 10, verse 47, 48... Um, A blind beggar refers to Jesus as the son of David. Um, A blind man saw what so few people around him saw, that Jesus was the king that God had promised. And what we need to realize is that uh, a reference to Jesus being uh, the, the son of David is a reference back to 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, David longed to uh, build a house for God. But instead, God promised to build a house for him, to give him a throne that would last forever. And in verse 10 of our passage, God's people recognize this. The, The language they used to bless his name comes from Psalm 118, which we sang earlier. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, Hosanna is uh, one of those words uh, that you've maybe heard if you've been in church for a little while. Um, But in the original language, it means save us, save us now. And so for those people shouting it, this would have meant deliverance from Rome. It would have meant freedom. It had a political, a military 
feel. And deep down, you and I, we long for this kind of leadership. We long for someone to come and save us, to clean up the mess, to get rid of the things that hold us back. But the problem is that leadership like that is a mirage. Leadership like that is a mirage, this side of the new creation. Barack Obama was elected as president on a wave of emotion, wasn't he? Change, hope, yes we can. But he found out very quickly that he couldn't really change very much. And the gray hairs started to appear. Um, An economic crisis crippled his administration. And it's hard to think of a politician, even a politician as charismatic as um, he was, who hasn't known something similar. Every political career comes to an end with, well, a bit of a whimper. And what the crowd didn't know was that Jesus' career was going to look similar. It was not going to look like a triumph initially. It was going to look like a defeat. He was about to subvert all their ideas, all our ideas of what a king really looks like. He was about to turn them upside down. And that leads us to the last thing we need to see in this passage. He's not just here as planned. He's not just here as king. No, verse 11 tells us that he is here to go. He is here to go, to go somewhere. And the other day I was um, taking a video on my phone and I accidentally pressed the time-lapse button. Um, I thought I was recording uh, the boys playing on um, somebody's piano. That th- this couple are not here today. But the boys were playing uh, on their piano. I thought I was recording this, an amazing musical performance. Uh, instead of 30 seconds, it was kind of condensed into two and really sped up. And Mark is like that. Mark is pacey. And the drama in Mark, if you read it, it cuts from one scene to the next really quickly. The key word is immediately. And it's used lots of times. You can see it in verse 2 and verse 3. But from chapter 11, from this point to the end, the narrative is slowing down. And chapters 1 to 10, they cover about three years, but chapters 11 to 13 cover three days. And all the Gospels are like this. They're written carefully. There's lots of things that the authors don't tell us. And it's almost as if they want our eyes to start to fix on the cross. This is really different, isn't it, to our um, normal biographies. Usually a person's death is just a brief note at the end and before their legacy is considered, if they're a famous person. 
The Gospels are different. And the cross of Jesus, it has cast a shadow over Mark. Um, as from as far back as chapter 3, verse 6. Turn there with me um, if you have a Bible. Chapter 3 and verse 6. Um, Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees are really angry at this. He's broken all their rules. And then we read this. The Pharisees went out and immediately, there's our word again, they held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So God comes to earth. People often say this, don't they? If God just showed up, I'd believe in him. God comes to earth. And what do human beings do? They kill him. And yet even when God sent his best, his son, and we did our worst, all of that was still part of God's plan. If you're in chapter 3, flick back to chapter 11 and look at verse 11. And maybe you'd agree with me that um, when you read these words, they seem like a bit of an anticlimax, don't they? And the crowds have disappeared. Jesus enters the temple and he just looks around. And then he goes back to Bethany with the twelve. It doesn't really seem in keeping with verses 1 to 10, does it? And maybe if you were Jesus, his, his PR man, wouldn't you say something like this? Jesus, this is your moment. This is your window of opportunity. This is your time to claim the throne. But he doesn't. No, Jesus has come to bring a different kind of kingdom. He's come to be a different kind of king. He's here to go somewhere. He's here to go to a cross. As one um, Palm Sunday hymn puts it, ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. And from this point, Jesus will become increasingly isolated as he heads to the cross, the disciples, as he goes there, the disciples will flee away from him, pull back from him. As he goes there, he won't just be forsaken by his friends. No, he will be forsaken by his father. And he will go there to do that for us, for you, for me. Jesus will go to the cross for people who are abandoning him in that very moment. This is what it will cost him. He will wage war against our sin. And he will defeat it. That hymn, I just quoted a moment ago, says this, O Christ, your triumphs now begin... 
as you go to the cross were captive death and conquered sin. And what we need to understand, friends, is that his way, his pattern of life, that is to be our pattern of life. The trajectory of his life is to be ours as well. Jesus has been clear about this all along. In chapter 8, he says, If anyone would come after me, he is to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And when you and I buy something um, on the internet, perhaps we're often met with a box which says, Have you read the terms and conditions? And what normally happens when you click on that link? Uh, don't you always get a big, about 25 pages of information to read in tiny font? Nobody, we never read it, do we? Well, Jesus' call is totally clear. He says, if anyone would come after me, he is to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's no catch all out in the open. I am going to the cross, he says. Come with me. See, Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus has a different kind of kingdom. In his kingdom, losing is winning. Weakness is strength. The last are first. And the way up, the way up is down. I think there are lots of applications we could make here in the home, in the office, in marriage, in friendships, in work. And we often think, I often think that discipleship has to look pretty spectacular. But doing the dishes, putting out the rubbish, going on a rota, taking my eyes off myself and looking to Jesus. That is what discipleship so often looks like. Coming to church with the question, not what can I get out of this service, but what can I give to my brothers and sisters? What can I put in to this church family? I sometimes think that my generation has um, forgotten this. We don't see many books or conferences about sacrifice. And we live in a, an age where being keen about anything seems a bit naff. And the world tells us that we're crazy to follow a crucified Savior. The world tells us we're crazy to follow someone who laid down his life. But the truth is, to only care for number one, to be turned into myself, well, that is the long and lonely path to isolation and despair. But to forget myself, to give myself away for Jesus and other people, that is the way, that is the strange path 
the joy. And the Christians who are freest and happiest are those who've learned to die to self. Yesterday was the 77th anniversary um, of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, A few years ago, I visited the Nazi concentration camp in Flossenburg where uh, he died, where he was uh, hung. And he was uh, hung, of course, for standing up to uh, the Nazi regime. And he was a man who was born into incredible privilege. And yet he was also someone who learned that real treasure is found in following a crucified king. He once said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die. And Mark would agree with that. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is where Jesus is going, to a cross. And this is what Jesus wants us to do, to look to him, to follow him, to die. And yet, in dying, to truly live. Well, let's pray together. Bow your meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O God, your power and reign. Lord Jesus Christ, true and humble King, hailed by the crowd as Messiah, grant us the faith to know you and love you, that we may be found beside you on the way of the cross, which is the path of glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to finish um, our service this morning by singing a song that speaks of following Jesus on the way to the cross. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. Let's stand and sing together. <clears throat>